This morning we will be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 6, another section in the story of the Ark of the Covenant. We've seen the Ark brought out into battle, we've seen the Ark captured and brought to the capital of the Philistines, and now this morning we see the Ark come back to Israel. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 6, going through to the first two verses of chapter 7. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send the ark away, the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put it on a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. 
And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, A long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask this morning that you would use your word to teach us more of who you are, that we would know you, O Lord, and that knowing you, we would be changed. We would change not only our actions, but our being and who we are, seeking you out. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning we deal with a subject that is timely for us today in 2017. Because in our day and age, one of the things that we have lost is a sense of awe. We have lost the ability to look upon something, especially the Lord our God, and to be impressed and to realize that the Lord is greater than we are. Even the way that we use the word awesome today denies its root. Today, awesome means something fun or flippant, It doesn't mean something fearful, something that demands respect. And this is important for us today in 2017 because the Lord our God is a holy God. The Lord our God is holy before us and we should be moved by a sense of awe when we are before him. We should wonder who can stand before the Lord, even as the Israelites ask the question. This should not be a question that is easy to answer or is flippant upon our lips. Instead, it should be something that causes us to search our hearts, to find out who we are and how we relate to the Lord. And so this morning, as we ask the question, who can stand before the Lord? We look at the Lord in two contexts. First, we see the Lord among the Philistines. 
And then second, we see the Lord among the Israelites. The Lord in His place amongst those who do not profess His name. And the Lord in His place amongst those who do profess His name. The Lord among the Philistines. And the Lord among the Israelites. Let's begin then by looking what the life of the Philistines is like with the Lord in their midst. And the thing right now at this point in our story that has the Philistines' attention is that they want to avoid God's wrath. Right in verse 1, we are introduced with the time that the ark has spent amongst the Philistines. And it has been, I dare say, a very long seven months. The ark has been amongst the Philistines, I think, about six and a half months too long. They have experienced pain and suffering. They have seen their god, Dagon, be defeated. And now we read in this chapter that it is not just sores and tumors that are upon their bodies, but their land is being ravaged by mice. There is complete chaos in the land of the Philistines. What had started out as a great victory has become a nightmare. Their God was embarrassingly defeated. They've had great suffering and death, and they are in a complete panic, our text tells us in chapter 5. Panic has seized the Philistines. Their suffering has been complete. We see this in verse 5. The suffering has come upon them, their gods, and their land. It's a triple threat against the Philistines. But there is some significance about this new detail that we get about the mice ravaging the lands of the Philistines. And it is not just that mice are distasteful. I know that as soon as the scripture mentions, or as I speak about mice, perhaps one of the thoughts that comes to your mind is how horrible it would be if there were mice in my house. They're dirty. They're filthy. Even though they're much smaller than me, they're, they're frightening after a way because almost the only thing worse than a live mouse is a dead mouse. And so how do I deal with mice? But you see, it's not this sort of difficulty that is being emphasized here in our text. Rather, instead, there is a challenge to all of the Philistines. Now, there is a practical effect to all of these mice being around. In an agricultural society, the mice are ruining the harvest. And when you have no harvest, remember what happens. You don't eat. There's no grocery store to go to. So as the mice are going through the fields, there is a practical devastation. But the second thing is, is that there is a direct attack going upon the god of the Philistines. Do you remember last week what we said Dagon was supposed to be the god of? He was the God of the harvest. He was the God of crops. He was the God of plenty. Well, now what we see here is God further defeating the God of the Philistines through the use of mice. He's defeating the God of the Philistines. So it's not just that a statue of Dagon has fallen down. No, it's much worse than that. Dagon himself has fallen down on the job. He can't do what he's supposed to be doing. He's no match for mice. That's what God is telling us. There is also, thirdly, a reminder about the exodus. 
Because the Philistines have made clear to us, and they do again in this chapter, in verse 6, that they have heard about the exodus from Egypt. And that would have frightened them even more, to realize that perhaps the plagues, like plagues, in Egypt have come down upon them. The Philistines might say to themselves, if this is what a culture war looks like, we want no part of this. We can't win. So what do they do now? Well, they clearly do not want this to continue. One thing that they are sure of is that they do not want to continue to suffer. And so they go, in verse 2, to the priests and diviners. Now they know something is going on here that is beyond their control. And they know it can't be settled by ordinary means. They don't dare ignore the problem and hope it goes away. But at the same time, they can't just take the ark and dump it on the closest hill. Because if God is this angry with them for bringing the ark into the temple of Dagon, how angry would he be if they dropped him on the next hill? So they've got to figure out, how do we get the ark out of here and save ourselves in the process? So they go to the people who handle these sorts of things, the priests and the diviners. Now, there is a great irony here. Because they are going to ask the men who represent the false gods who have been defeated how they deal with God. It really doesn't make any sense at all. Because the truth is, they really don't know anything about God. They don't have His Word. They have not heard Him speak. They don't know what He requires. But what they have is sort of a sense of the spiritual. These are priests and diviners who deal with things that aren't ordinary, with God's sort of things. Now, there's a lesson for this, in this, excuse me, for you and for me. You see, it is not enough for us in our life to just simply think spiritually about things. It's not enough for us to try to be spiritual and fumble our way through life. No. If we would deal with God, the only way that we can deal with God is through the means of His Word. He has spoken in His Word. If we want to know who God is, what He requires of us, we must go to His Word. It's not enough to just think spiritual thoughts. When we do that, we become no better than these priests or diviners. Now, the Philistines are certain about some things, and they are uncertain about other things. What they're certain about is that the wrath of God is on them. They're experiencing it firsthand. This is not theory to them. They wake up in the morning, and they feel the tumors. They go to town, and they hear that more people have died. They look at their crops, and they're ravaged and consumed. They're also absolutely certain that they want to be out from under the wrath of God. That much they know. God's wrath is upon them, and they don't want to be under it. Now, let's stop for a moment and think about this. Because, you see, this has a lesson for us. The Bible tells us that the wrath of God comes upon people because of their sin. And so when we rebel against a holy God, we are sinning. 
And this is actually what sin is at its root. Sin is the failure to give God His glory. It is saying that we are equal or better than God. Our will should trump God's will. Now, clearly the Philistines had done this. They had sought to make God serve Dagon. But, we should not be so quick to accuse them while excusing ourselves. We must examine ourselves and our action. What is our attitude toward God? What is our attitude about our own sin? How do we view the Lord's right to punish our sin? Because God's judgment is His response to sin. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. After all, the wages of sin is death. Now, until we realize that, we have absolutely no hope. Could you imagine if the Philistines decided that their solution was simply to think more positively? That if they thought positive thoughts, the tumors might go away? That if they thought positive thoughts and claimed thoughts, that the mice would leave the crops alone? Well, it's foolish. But so is it foolish for you and for me to think that somehow that we could go around the wrath of God, that simply if we have the right attitude, life will be good and blessed and happy. No. This is one thing the Philistines are certain of. But there's also several things that they are uncertain of. They're uncertain about the exact cause of their problems. They don't know God, so they don't know exactly how they interact with God. And so therefore, they are uncertain what to do. And you actually see this in their language. Look at verse 3. The priest's advice is, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. Now, stop and remember what's going on. We've just been having the magical ark tour. They've been playing musical arcs in Philistine. They send him to Ashdod. Then they send the ark to Ekron. Then they send the ark to Gath. They're just trying to get it away from them. And now here the priests are saying, well, you might want to think about sending the ark away. Could you imagine the response? If? Who are you kidding? We're trying to figure out how we get it as far away as possible. But you see... The priests don't know the solution. They don't want to be on the hook here. Because for all they know, the ark could be sent away and the boils will continue, the tumors will continue, the mice will be in the fields. They don't know and they don't want to be responsible. But they do have enough understanding to know that if they're going to fix the situation, they need to make a payment to God. They need to reimburse God, as it were, for their sin against Him. They need to make it right, make restitution. And so what they do is, they take the most expensive thing that they have, gold, and they give it to God. But it is interesting what they decide to do. They decide to make models of tumors and mice. Now, think about the foolishness of ungodly thinking. You're going to take the most expensive 
item that you have, gold, and you're going to fashion it into a tumor. Now, I wonder in my imagination which of the five Philistine lords posed for the tumor model so that they could make the tumor. I mean, just as you read the text, doesn't it seem ridiculous? Five golden tumors? Five golden mice? But see, they're hoping to appease God. And so they're doing everything they can. But you see, they're also uncertain of the success that they might have. It's really just a shot in the dark. Because in verse 5, the priests say, Perhaps he will lighten his hand against you. Again, there's no guarantee here. Maybe God will let up. Now, the good news of the gospel is that we are not in the same place as the Philistines. No, I don't mean because we're better than they are. I mean because we, unlike they, have God's word. We're not shooting in the dark. God, in his word, tells us exactly what is the cause of our separation from him. It's our sin. In his word, he tells us exactly what our sin deserves. That is, judgment and death. And most importantly, God's word tells us exactly what the offering for our sin is. Praise be to the Lord that you don't need to go home tonight and to try to find what sort of odd item you will make a gold model of. No. The Philistines had given the most expensive thing that they had. But the Bible tells us that nothing we have can be an offering for sin. If we give our very best, it is not enough. Peter puts it this way. He says, You were ransomed from your futile ways, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Philistines were right that we should not harden our hearts against God. But the only way to do away with our guilt and to find forgiveness is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not through what we own or what we can do. Now, it seems like the Philistines are going all out. They want to avoid God's wrath, but they also want to understand God's ways so they, can, they know that they will be successful. They are spending a great deal of wealth. They are trying to find out what can be done to avoid these punishments. But there is a key point here that they miss. Nowhere in this chapter do we hear of the Philistines actually trying to understand God. Do we? They're not seeking out God. They don't ask the Israelites about God. They don't try to find and read God's word. They're actually not trying to be right with God. What they are trying to do is to get this business to stop. And that is not a relationship with God. You see, oftentimes we are tempted in the midst of our own sorrow, in the midst of hard providences, not to seek God, but simply to yell, Stop it! And as soon as it stops, our thoughts about God fade away completely. Because the only reason we thought of God was to try to ask God to stop it. 
Now, if this is true, think about your own life and the mercy of God not stopping it. Have you ever wondered that maybe your continued pain is a blessing from God? Not because you should enjoy pain. I certainly don't. But because it keeps your focus on Him. Have you ever wondered whether your continual struggles, financially, relationally, are actually a blessing from God because they require you to fix your gaze upon Him? Not just simply to be satisfied that life is good. You see, it shouldn't surprise us that with the Philistines, all they are totally convinced of is that they want this to stop. They're not even convinced that God is the cause. It could just be a string of bad luck, couldn't it? Isn't that what people around you say? I'm having all this bad luck. I don't understand why. You know, ever since I started cheating on my spouse, all this bad luck has been happening to me. My finances are a mess, and... and People don't seem to relate to me well anymore. You know, ever since I started stealing things, the cops keep hassling me. I have really bad luck. You know, it could also be that they're trying to come up with a perfectly material explanation of what's going on. That somehow they could take God out of the equation. And so I find it actually very humorous to read secular commentaries on the book of Exodus, specifically the section on the plagues, and to watch people backwards somersault through hoops to try to convince me that a river turning to blood, followed by flies and frogs, followed by a day of darkness, is perfectly natural. It could easily happen over and over and over and over again. And of course, only to the Egyptians not to the Israelites. It's, there's a perfectly good explanation for that, supposedly. But you see, when we do that, we deceive ourselves. And they're deceiving themselves because they are not ready to acknowledge God. So they come up with a plan. And their plan is to try and eliminate all of the other possibilities. They want to come up with a plan that the only answer is God. Everything else is taken away. And so what they do is they make a new cart, which means they can't blame the wheels or the spokes or the axles. It's brand new. And then they take cows. But you notice the detail about the cows. They're two milk cows that have never been yoked before. Now this, I have to give the Philistines credit, this is genius. Because you see, these are milk cows that have calves. Now, if any of you have ever lived or gone or visited a farm, you will know what happens when a cow has calves. That the cow has to be milked each day, either by the farmer or by the calves. And so, the cow doesn't even like to be a distance from the calves. Because they know that... The life of the calves depends upon the cow. And so what they say is, look, we're going to take these two cows. They've never drawn a cart before. We're going to put a yoke on them. We're going to put the calves back there, and we're going to send them that away. Now, what should a cow do? What a cow should do is say, I don't care about you and your yoke or the stupid cart. I'm going to my calves. And if there's no one driving the cart... 
the cow should turn right around and go back to where their young are, right? And what they say is, if this doesn't happen, then we know it's got to be God because it's against every instinct of the animals. And so what happens is the cows go straight off to Israel. Not a little bit to the right, not a little bit to the left. They go straight to Beth Shemesh. Now, I want to ask you a question. Many of you have pets. Have you ever watched your dog go from one place to the next place in a straight line? Have you ever known a cat to go from point A to point B by the quickest route? I never have. They're all over the place. And yet here these cows go straight for Israel. What's going on here? There's no hesitation. The only thing that is going on is they are lowing. Now, I'm going to spare you my impression of a cow. But I think we all know what a lowing cow sounds like. You see, what's going on here is the cows are expressing their displeasure. They don't want to be going this direction. They want to be going the opposite direction. Actually, it's against all that is in their physical nature. Because, you know, cows need relief from milk. And they know they're not going to get it. And so they're complaining all the way around. But they're not moving a bit to the right or a bit to the left. Now, let's stop and think about this for a minute. Now, we might be tempted to try to figure out God in the same sort of way. You may recall the story of Gideon, who when he was trying to figure out what God wanted him to do, he said, okay, God, I'm going to put out this fleece, and you make it wet and everything around it dry, and then I'll know that you want me to do this, and I'll follow you. Gideon gets up, and the fleece is wet with everything around it's dry. And so Gideon says, okay, God, one more time here. But now I want to be really sure, so let's reverse it. I'm going to put the fleece back out again, and if the fleece is dry and everything around it is wet, then I'll really know what you want me to do. You see, we're tempted to live life like that. God, if you just do this for me, then I'll know really you're in charge and I'll do something. If you just give me this, or give me that, or make this circumstance turn out a certain way, then I will know your God and I'll follow you. But this brothers and sisters, is pagan thinking. It's from the Philistines who think that their God that can't stand up by himself and can't fight off mice are powerful. We ought not to think like this. Don't ever test God this way. We have the word of God. We don't need such remarkable providences. We have the sure word of prophecy that God gives to us. We don't need to test God. All we need to do is to read what he has told us in his word. Well, the ark goes on, and it makes its way to Beth Shemesh. And the Lord is now found among the Israelites. And Israel is now in the presence of the Lord. Now, This town was not very far from the Philistines. We know this because the Philistine lords sneak up to the outskirts and spy. And then, once they see that the ark is gone, with the Israelites, they go back home. And so what are the Israelites doing? What have they been doing since this defeat seven months ago? What's going on? 
Well, the most obvious thing is that life has gone on. They are out planting and harvesting. And we also see from their response to the ark coming back that they know that the loss of the ark was a great loss. And so they received the ark with great joy, rejoicing in verse 13. Because the departure of the ark had meant sorrow and defeat, but it had also meant that the glory of God had departed. And so now they are hoping that the return of the ark means that God's glory will return. Imagine their excitement. Off in the distance, they hear these cows. And then, coming around the corner, they see them in the distance. And then, as if guided by an invisible hand, the cows come straight to them in the city. And it just so happens that the city that it comes to is a Levite town. It's filled with those whose expertise is in taking care of the ark. Imagine the odds of that. And there is a reverence about their interaction with the Lord. They see the ark, and they immediately sacrifice. They immediately give God His due, and they establish witnesses to this blessing. They take the golden objects, and they put them around this huge rock, and they say, this will be a testimony, a witness to what the Lord has done, not just for today, but forever. And actually, our author describes it that way, doesn't he? He says, this is the way it is to this day. Now, if this were a nice story, we would end right here. Right at verse 18. The bad guys have been punished. Happiness has returned to Israel. And the world is back to normal. What more could we want? Cue the credits. But the thing is, the story doesn't end here. Verse 19 comes, and verse 19 strikes us as God strikes the Israelites. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. Now, what is happening here? God strikes them because they looked upon the ark. Now, what can't be meant is everyone who looked at the ark was struck dead, or everyone in the town would have been killed. It doesn't mean also at the same time that they somehow opened up the ark and peered into it and found death, a la Indiana Jones. No, actually what the Hebrew text says is they looked upon the ark. So what does this mean? Let's understand for a moment how the ark works. The Levites were responsible for transporting the ark, but they were not to display the ark. As a matter of fact, only Aaron and his sons were really permitted to view even the outside of the ark. They were responsible for covering the ark. And this was so that Israel would know about the holiness of God, so that they would not take him for granted. They would not be familiar to them. And what the Israelites had done here was they made the ark a tourist attraction. You could just imagine. They're calling all to each other. Come see the ark. Look what's coming to town. Tell your cousins. Tell your uncle. Bring your aunt in from outside. Let them see the ark. We got the ark. They're actually treating the ark not very differently than they did before it was captured. 
You see, instead of following God's instructions in His Word, they use their own sentiments, their own understanding. They thought they knew best. And this is the great danger that the church faces today. All over our country, sections of the church seek to modify God's Word to meet their own needs and requirements to even abandon portions of God's Word. And this risks the judgment of God, not unlike we see here at Beth Shemesh. So how then should Israel have responded to the ark? There are two ways they could have responded. We know the Philistines just wanted to get rid of it. They were glad to see it go. You could almost imagine the lords, as they see it in Israelite hands, wiping their hands saying, I'm glad that's over. They get back to Philistia, and they commission the shirt makers of Ekron to build and make shirts that say, I survived the ark plagues of 1070. They're just glad to get past it. The irony here is the Israelites deal with it almost the same way. They say, to whom can we send this ark? I know. Let's tell the people at Kiriath-Jerim. We won't even tell them what happened. And we'll send the ark on to them. You see, that's often our view of God. We want a God who is tolerant of our behaviors. Who is our buddy. Who is familiar to us. But that's not who God is. God is holy. He is intimate with us, but He is not familiar. And this is exactly what happened in the days of the New Testament, when Jesus cast the demon out from the demon-possessed man. Do you remember what the reaction of the town was? Oh, thank you, Jesus. We're so glad you healed him, Jesus. Teach us, Jesus. No. Do you remember their reaction was, Get out! You scare us. We don't want your demands on our lives. You're dangerous. Get out! And they thrust Jesus out from their midst because they wanted to be comfortable. That is an idolatrous view of God. But there is a proper way to respond to God. And we see this in the first two verses of chapter 7. The men of Kiriath-Jerim, they take the ark and they respond to the holiness and the power of God by faith. Now, the expected thing that we would think after having seen this ark story now for some time is what they should have done was said, no way. We know what this ark does. Every place the ark is, it kills people. We do not want the ark. Get it out of here. But they actually do the exact opposite. They embrace the ark. They find a place for the ark. They put someone in charge of the circumstances around the ark. You see, they trust the Lord. And so, therefore, they make accommodations for the ark. Now, there's an interesting fact about this city that you need to know. This city, we meet in Joshua chapter 9, verse 17. It's a city of a people called the Gibeonites. You may not remember who the Gibeonites are. That's the group of people who lived in the promised land and who realized that the Israelites were destroying all of the people in the promised land. And so they wanted to avoid getting destroyed. 
And so what they did was they came up with a plan. They got really stale old bread, and they put on the worst shoes and clothes they could find. And they went to the Israelites, and they convinced them that they had come from very, very far away. And that therefore the Israelites could make a treaty with them. And Joshua and the Israelites don't go to the Lord. They don't ask the Lord what they should do. And they mistakenly make a treaty with this people. And they are settled in the lands of Israel to be their servants. And one of their cities is Kiriath-Jerim. Why is this important? It's because the people of this town understand God and who He is and what He requires. Not because they've served God for millennia. Not because they are Israelites. Not because of their lineage. They serve God because they know His Word. They have taken the time to learn the Word of God. To understand who God is. And you see, that is what we are all called to do. Even we who are foreigners to God. Do you believe God's Word? The Lord tells you that the only way to stand before Him is dressed in the robes of Jesus Christ. You must believe on the Lord Jesus. He is the sacrifice that turns aside the wrath of God. He is God Himself who dwells with His people. You are called to respond by faith to the God who is with you. Respond with reverence, honoring Him. Respond with joy, being thankful for all He has done. Respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true and living and holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that You have spoken to us through Your Word. And that we do not need circumstances or providences. But what we need, O Lord, is your word. For it informs us of who you are. And of what you have done. And what you require of us. Bless us this day, O Lord, by pointing us to your word. That in it we might find the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might believe upon him that we might trust Him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.